Hi everyone, welcome to Junket. This is a show where I chat with filmmakers about some of their past work. Today I have a friend of mine, Todd Vero, who is going to talk to me about his 1995 Dennis Cooper adaptation, Frisk. Frisk was, and sort of still is, quite a controversial film in a lot of ways. Its subject matter is very dark and upsetting, as per Dennis Cooper's usual style. But also, Todd changed a lot of the elements of the book, including the ending, and Dennis Cooper wasn't super happy with it. Uh, It was pretty reviled and beloved when it came out at the same time. And I think it's due for a revisit, because I think it's a really great film, I think a lot of people would embrace it much more today. Todd is lovely to chat with, and he really gets into all the details of this film and his career. Love chatting with him. And so, yeah, I hope you enjoy this interview with Todd Vero about Frisk. Hello, Todd. Hello. Today, today we're going to talk about what the New York Times called harshly repellent, the film Frisk. (laughs) But before we do that, I'd love to just hear about your career. Uh, What was your entry point into film? Um, Well, I started acting as a child, um, you know, doing theater stuff in school. And then I actually took some time off from high school and did some theater stuff. so I was always interested in acting. And then at a certain point, I my shyness got in the way. So I decided to retreat behind the camera. And I think that's where I belong. Um, so that's when I started making films. And then I went to Rhode Island School of Design and studied film and video there and acting and directing at Brown University. Um, and after that, I moved to New York and I was working at the factory after Andy died um, and doing stuff for MTV. And I knew John Mortsugu um, from Brown and RISD and he asked me to shoot Mod Fuck Explosion. So I went out to San Francisco and did that. Um, but at the same time, I was making short films. Um, and then um, I worked on Gregoraki's Totally Fucked Up. Uh, and then I, you know, shot a few other movies. And then Marcus Yu, the producer of Frisk, asked me if I was interested in making a feature. And I was because I was struggling with the idea of, um, you know, what was I going to do to do a feature? So um, he sent me this, the book Frisk. I hadn't read it. Um, and I said, sure, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do this. So that was how I started making features. Was the short film period of your life, like, financially stable? Like, were you doing anything else at the time? Uh, It wasn't exactly financially stable, but, I mean, it was, you know, the late 80s. um, So living in New York was relatively cheap. So, um, you know, I was doing odd jobs and things like that. And, like I said, working for the factory and MTV and um, making some money. through that but uh, my short films you know they they played a lot of places but they didn't really make any money frisk played sundance right that was your breakout moment uh yes uh it, it first it played at the out, out fest in la for some reason 
Um, and then it played Toronto, and then it played Sundance, and then it played Berlin, and then it played a whole bunch of other places. So it's and the infamous screening in San Francisco at the um, Frameline Film Festival where a riot broke out. Wait, what? What? <laughs> Uh, it, it was the closing night movie of the Frameline Film Festival, which is the LGBTQ plus film festival in San Francisco. Um, and the closing night also happened to be Gay Pride. Um, and, you know, it showed in a sold out theater at the Castro. Um, and people just started screaming, sick, sick, during the movie. Um and I guess like a fight broke out and like people moved into the street and, you know, a big sort of riot happened. I didn't really witness it because I was trying to do a Q&A at the time um, where people were screaming at me. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting. That's kind of crazy to me because I feel like darkness and the macabre are so intertwined into queer cinema these days. And those days too. I mean, I, I, the whole the whole phenomenon was bizarre to me as well. I didn't really understand where it was coming from. I mean, it was the height of the whole um, positive role models are needed uh, movement, um, which I think was really misguided. Um, but it was kind of the nadir of that. Um, but for, for weeks afterwards in San Francisco, people were yelling at me in the street and people would throw things at me. <laughs> and it was written about in the like the Bay Area Reporter, like every week would have somebody saying something about that screening and that horrible person, me. Um, so it was, and it, actually the Advocate magazine said that I should be killed. That Not was, a, a death threat over, uh, over Frisk. Uh-huh. Do you think Dennis Cooper got the same response? No, because he's a writer and writers can get away with that because, you know, and also um, the end of the book basically just says, oh, I made all this up. None of this is real, which I thought was a huge cop out. And I want and I changed the movie so that didn't happen in the in the in the movie. Um, cause I talked to some writer, I talked to Rene Ricard and he was like, oh yeah, he just did that because he'd get a lot of shit if he didn't say that this was all made up. It's not real. So I said, okay, that's good to know. I didn't actually ask Dennis about it cause I didn't want to know the real answer. Um, so yeah, I thought that's why he, I think that's why he didn't get as much shit as I, I mean, I'm sure he gets his share of shit about all this stuff he writes, but you know, as a, as a writer and a, you know, intellectual, he gets away with it a bit more than someone like I do. So to rewind, you you <laughs> you were given the book, and then yeah. what did you think about it, and why did you feel like you were a good fit for it? Because I could picture it. I mean, I I know I wanted to make like a lot of changes and sort of make it go even further than the book did. Um, I liked like the scenes and the ideas of things. Um, I, like I said, I hated the ending. I thought the ending was a huge cop out. I remember I read it and I threw the book across the, the room like this is bullshit. Um, but then when I realized, well, I can just change the ending, um, then I was excited about it. 
And the I remember I wrote a draft. I wrote a, a script really quickly um, while the book was fresh in my mind. And it was really extreme. I wish I could get a copy of that original script because it was really out there. And I sent it to Marcus and he didn't respond for a while. And then he was like, yeah, I think we're going to pass on this. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's fine with me. Like, I wanted to do this version, so I'm going to move on. And and, the, and he had somebody else do another version of the script. And then uh, a few months later, he got back to me and said, hey, are you still interested? Do you want to have another go at the at this uh, script? And he told me, you know, his problems with my original script, you know, that it was just too extreme and all that. Um, so he sent me the new script and I did an adaptation of that. And then he said, okay, let's do it. Um, and that's what it became. I feel like everybody has a different answer to this, but what draws you to extremity and violence and, and blood in, in film? I think it's, um, you know, growing up in Bangor, Maine, you know, being surrounded by Stephen King and all the violence that existed in Bangor, Maine. It's not, you know, his books are based on real things. Um, influenced me a great deal. And, you know, just uh, my personal history of, you know, abuse and things like that have always drawn me towards more extreme things. And I think extreme things make you get to the core of yourself and, um that's interesting to me um you know i'm not interested in people who just like work day to day and, and nothing bad ever happens to them because then they have no challenges and nothing that, that they have to work through and i think that's where the drama comes in and the interesting stuff do you do you consider yourself a provocateur i don't i, I mean i hate that term because it's it's sounds phony like you're trying to provoke people and I don't think, you know, that's not my intention. I think uh, my intention is just to present sometimes extreme things and to um, see how people react. I'm not, I'm not, you know, provoking or, you know, uh, I'm more showing, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. How do people just, you know, hide so much from their life and their existence and, I, and i'm interested in peeling back those layers and getting to the real thoughts and and things that are going on in people's heads that they hide so how is frisk financed and what what was the budget on it oh god um <laughs> well marcus you the producer um who is the the person behind strand releasing financed it. I'm not really sure how, and I'm not really sure exactly what the budget was, but I know it was very low. Um, basically, I didn't get paid anything. I don't think most of the crew didn't get paid anything. Um, and most of the actors didn't really get paid much either, except except the ones that happened to be SAG. Um, so yeah, the budget was very low. We had a, I, and, I, and that's, you know, I prefer prefer working that way because it allows you to be more creative and you don't have a million people looking over your head and questioning every move you make. Um, and I purposely had a very small crew. I had a, I had a cinematographer 
and uh, you know a couple of um, crew people for the camera department. Uh, the production designer was a friend of mine that I went to RISD with. Um, I met a couple of PAs, and that's really in the sound person and that's really about it I mean I, I prefer small crews I like to be intimate with my actors and um, really be able to work with them without any distractions so yeah it was very small budget and um, that's that was great and it was just you know Marcus you as the producer and um, yeah what was the casting process like because you have a you have a bunch uh, of picturesque, muscular gays in it. And uh, how did you find those people? Uh, well, the casting was interesting. The first person that was attached to the movie was actually Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, and, you know, he was all set. To, he was excited to do it and everything. Um, but then um, sort of a little, maybe a month or so before shooting, he called out up and said, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it. My managers won't let me do it. So he dropped out. Um, so um, I got the person I got to replace him was actually the person that the book is dedicated to. So I thought that was really interesting um, because I guess he was sort of an inspiration for the book. Um, the character that Parker Posey plays, um, it is not in the book. It's not the character I created because there are no female characters in the book. And I thought that there should be some. Um, so that part was, I went through a, a long process of, I originally wanted an actor, an actress that I've worked with on a lot of my short films that I went to school with, um, Susan, Susan Becker to play that part and she turned it down. Um, and I wanted Patricia Arquette to do it because I knew her and I'd worked with her on um, some short films. Um, but she was with Nicolas Cage at the time and um, it was impossible to get in touch with her. She sort of, you know, stopped talking to all of her old friends like me. Um, <laughs> So then Marcia Gay Harden was, um, Marcus wanted Marcia Gay Harden to do it, but she said, what is this? This is gay porn. I'm not going to do this. Uh, <laughs> so we were trying to figure out who could play this part. And then Marcus said, um, what about Parker Posey? And, and I was just like, fantabulous. Uh, <laughs> I'd love Parker Posey. She would be perfect. And um, she, you know, agreed to do it. And that was great. Um, and I knew, because I knew Patricia, I also knew Alexis, because he was also in some short films that I had done. So I wanted Alexis to be in it. Um, Craig Chester, I met um, when Swoon played in New York, because I was with Greg Araki when Living End played. So I, I met him then, and I really liked his performance in Swoon, so I definitely wanted him to be part of it. Um, for the lead character, I wanted it to be somebody who was hot enough that um, any guy would go home with him because I thought, you know, it doesn't make sense for him to be sort of this not attractive guy because, you know, he wouldn't be able to attract all these people to him. And I like the idea of him being sort of a blank slate where, you know, he's attractive enough, but not you don't really remember him. So that's what I was looking for for that part. And I think... Um, Michael Gunther was perfect for that. Um, 
and he also needed you know he needed to be like somebody that you he'd walk into a room and people might think oh that guy's cute but they wouldn't really think much else of him um for the rest of the cast i mean there were just people that either we knew or we uh marcus knew from other movies and things so um you know we had some arguments about certain actors that I didn't want to be in it, um, which I won't go into. But um, yeah, but for the most part, we agreed on the casting and, it, and I'm happy with the cast that we got. They're all great. It's such a good cast. Parker Posey is so great in it. Oh, she, she is just so fantastic. You know, she showed up and she knew all her lines and she was like so prepared. She had all her costumes. She had thought everything out. And, you know, we do a take and she'd immediately get into character. We I'd cut and she would like, go back out of character. So you say such a like quick professional actress. And um she doesn't get credit for, I don't think, for for her dramatic work at all. And I think she's really fantastic in everything she does. So I'm very happy that she's in the movie. Adding a female character, changing the ending. How does Dennis Cooper feel about this movie? Well, um, one of the things I wanted to do before I committed to doing this was I wanted to meet with him and talk to him. So I, I remember I was in San Francisco because um, I had done Modfuck Explosion in Terminal USA with John Mertsugu. Um, and so, and he was in San Francisco. So it's like, okay, let's meet up and let's talk about this. So I met him and I said, you know, this, uh, I told him a little bit about what I wanted to do with the film and changes I wanted to make. And he said, you know, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with whatever you want to do. I've seen your films. I like your work. You know, I want you to be free to do whatever you want. I'll always have the book, you know, so I'm cool with it. So I was like, okay, that's great. And so then I said to Marcus, I said, okay, I'm ready. I, I'm ready to do this. And, you know, he did a, a little cameo in the movie and everything. Um, I think he read the script. I'm not sure. Um, so then when the movie was finished and he saw it, he like said, you need to, to Marcus, you need to change the ending. And I was, and so Marcus told me that and I was just like, what? He wanted me to put back in his original ending where it's just like, oh, none of this is real. It was all made up. It was all just a fantasy. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and um, then he started like bad mouthing me in the press and saying, you know, how much he hated the movie and stuff like that. And one of the things he had said was he wouldn't, Ever, he wouldn't say anything about the movie when it was done. Uh, so he sort of went against what he had told me, which pissed me off. Um, so, so I was definitely like, I'm not going to change it. Uh, so then I said, and then Marcus said, well, we have to, or these, he's going to, you know, badmouth it in the press. And I said, okay, if you want to add something at the ending at, after the credits, I'm okay with that, but I'm not going to have anything to do with it. Um, so they went and shot this alternate ending and put it at the end of the credits. Um, but then still, uh, Dennis Cooper badmouthed it, even though we had done that concession for him. So um, that really pissed me off. But whatever. I mean, 
like I said, he'll always have his book and I have my movie. So is that discouraging that that all happened? It was, it was slightly disappointing. I mean, especially considering we had that conversation and that's one of the reasons why I agreed to do it. So I don't know. What's your director style? Like, how do you, how do you direct actors? Um, I like to, I, I think the main thing you have to do as a director is the casting. Um, once you have to cast the movie correctly for what you want. And um, then you, and then you have to trust your actors um, that they're going to bring something to that part. Um, and I like. So I like to be really open at the beginning and to see what they have, what they come up with. And then if it's, you know, if I think it's going in a wrong direction, I'll talk to them about it and we'll figure something out. But for me, uh, I'm re I have a great deal of respect for actors and I, I, I like for them to bring their stuff to the table and then I can bring my stuff to the table. So it's sort of an exchange. Um, I like to talk a lot before we film I don't like to do a lot of rehearsals um because I think you know stuff can get a little bland then and and I, I like the spontaneity of just shooting um the rehearsals <laughs> um I like to do a lot of improvisation um not necessarily um with the script but with the action um and see what happens usually I we'll sort of block out the scene and then we'll like, go over it like loosely, um, not performance level. And then I like to shoot um, and see what happens. I mean, I, I think that's the most exciting thing about directing is just like being in the moment and seeing what happens. I'm not a, you know, Stanley Kubrick like person. I don't do a million takes um, and I don't like belittle and beat my actors into submission um and then with the editing it's quite frenetic and and um kind of uh non-linear in some ways how did you discover that flow of the film in the editing room well uh, for me one of the most important things as a director is being able to edit um not not, not if you're uh, not necessarily that you have to edit your films, but you have to understand editing um, because I think I've worked on so many movies where directors have no clue what they're, how they're going to put something together and they'll do it like all these different angles and takes and, and things that they don't need. Um, I always have a movie edited in my head beforehand. So I know exactly I need two seconds of this. I need a half a second of that and this. So, you know, especially when you're shooting in film, so you don't waste film. Um, so I will have the whole movie edited in my head. I'll know what, what I need. Um, but then when I get into the editing room, I'll, again, be creative and see what works and what doesn't and what things need to change. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I've come from the world of experimental film, all my short films. Uh, I mean, I, my, my first short film had like something like 500 edits in it. Um, so I like sort of getting inside someone's head and, and, you know, 
in my head anyway, things happen quickly. So that's why I like frenetic editing, especially for something like this where you're inside someone's head. The I would say the murders and the violence in this movie is not super graphic. Did you want to make it more violent or was it a choice to kind of gesture towards the killings? Um, well, like I was saying before, my original script was much more graphic and violent um, uh, and extreme. Um, and I think since I since we didn't make that and I had sort of the time to think about it before I did the next script, um, what I wanted to do with the new film is I wanted just to see enough to imply what's happened so that the viewer comes away from it thinking they've seen something much more extreme than they have. And I think that was successful because I had so many people coming up to me and say, you know, that scene where they cut the guy's head off is so gross and disgusting. I'm like, there is no scene of someone cutting a guy's head off. Um, and you know, that, that would happen all the time. People would say that scene of this and like that, there is no scene like that in the movie. So I think it was successful in that sense and that it, people think they see a lot more than they do. And I think that was my goal in making the film is making it really graphic inside the viewer's head, but not necessarily on the screen. Comparing your career from now to then, you work primarily in digital now. How has the industry changed for you in terms of financing, uh, distribution, uh, just basically any element that goes into making a film? Well, the, it was interesting because, um, you know, I had worked with Greg Araki and John Mortsugu before this, and I learned so much from those experiences because those films, we had no money. Um, we had to be creative, you know, lighting scenes with car headlights and, and you know, whatever. Um, so, and with Frisk too, you know, we had such a limited budget, we had to be creative and come up with solutions for everything. And I think that's how I like to work. Uh, I know after Frisk, I had a lot of meetings with meetings and meetings and meetings with Hollywood people about different things. And it was just like, everything took so long. And it was just like, okay, are we gonna make this movie or not? Like, what the fuck is going on? So then I was just like, fuck it. I'm just gonna get a, a tiny little videos, consumer video camera. And I'm going to make a film on my own for no money. Um, and that's when I made Little Shots of Happiness um, with the star Bonnie Dickinson. And, you know, it was just all improvised. It was just her and a bunch of actors in Boston. Um, and it was so much fun. I had a great time. And it was, you know, played at the Berlin Film Festival, played in a lot of other places, was really successful. Um, and it was all shot on a tiny little video camera, like with no sound person, just using the sound from the camera. And I was like, this is my new model. <laughs> so I made a bunch of movies like that. I got a better camera eventually. Um, and, you know, making movies for very little money with, with little to no crew um, was just great. I loved it. And that's sort of my, been my model since then. And I think... You know, it was interesting at first because no one was doing, you know, Dogma 95 was happening sort of at the same time as Little Shots of Happiness. Um, so, you know, there were other people doing the same thing, but with all their silly little rules. 
I was like, fuck that. I don't want any rules. I'm going to make things the way I want to make them. Um, and it, it was interesting because there was a lot of, you know, pushback, like film, film festivals said, oh, we need to transfer this stuff to film because they can't show video. And I remember with Anonymous, um, when it got in the Berlin Film Festival, they said, again, they said, oh, you need to transfer it to film. And I said, no, I'm not going to. Um, and I, I think a few other filmmakers that year said, no, we're not going to do that either. So they sort of changed their policy that year and allowed us to show things on video, which I think was a major step. Um, that was, I don't know what year that was. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the whole, the, and I, to me, you know, I talked a lot during that time about the digital film revolution. And I think that was what it was, was, you know, the idea that you could own your own camera, you could edit stuff on your own computer, you could be your own studio without any sort of other person involved. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's really great. And I think, you know, we're still seeing people do that and we'll continue to see people do yes, that. It'll be very, very interesting. It's incredibly it. freeing to be able to just do whatever you want. So I know you're working on a bunch of different restorations of your films and I know you're working on Frisk. Uh, what's it like kind of seeing these upscaled uh, newer versions of your films? Um, it's pretty amazing because um, it, the the technology and um the things that you can do with restoration are just uh, so amazing. And I think for me, it's it's a, a new creative process because you can do things that um, not necessarily fix things, but, you know, bring out the colors more and bring in the more contrast and, and just um, play with the image in ways that you couldn't really with the original film or the original video. Um, so I'm really excited about doing all of that and, you know, doing things with sound. And um, I resist the temptation to change anything, like um, as far as editing goes or anything like that. But I think it's really exciting. I mean, we haven't started doing anything on Frisk yet, but I'm really excited to, you know, really get into those. I'm, I'm excited about those colors, to bring those colors out. Because I think yeah. it's a really uh some of the shots are really beautiful um yeah i can imagine i think the dvd probably doesn't do it justice no and even the film because you know it was never um transferred to 35 it was shot in 16 millimeter so when it showed in theaters it was a 16 millimeter print with the optical sound and it has this great stereo amazing stereo mix that has never been shown in theaters because it was just an optical track and it's not the dvd doesn't do it justice either so um, um we're really excited to like get that really great sound mix onto the restoration so yeah it's going to be exciting yeah i'm, like, I'm so really I looking think it's forward really interesting because you know, the film was judged so much by its time. So now that, you know, 30 years have passed, I think it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is to the film, because I think it'll be very different. I think it'll be much more embraced now. I think people will 
I can see it having a run at, at, a, at a rep theater and and getting oh, a lot yes. of love. So that's Todd Varell on Frisk. Hopefully we see uh, a restoration of it soon. I would highly recommend checking out um, basically any of Todd's films. Uh, he's made, I think, upwards of 70 films. There's so much to watch, and his filmography is endlessly fascinating and, and so many gems in there uh so yeah if you want to keep up to date with junket you can follow at junket pod on twitter you can follow me at evian.official on instagram thank you for listening and i'll see you on the next episode